Stretching beneath the vast central Queensland plains, from cane to sapphires and cattle country, snakes the rich coal seams that are the livelihood of hundreds of small communities. 4RFM are on a quest to unearth, not coal, but the untold stories of the coalfields. Join us, Brianna and Elena, each month as we travel through towns, pubs and waterholes to seek out mysteries, ghosts, UFOs and strange phenomena. You're listening to 4RFM, untold stories of the coalfields. The work of man and God undo at Claremont on that awful night and leaving her in such a sorry plight, aghast and ruined, torn, destroyed. With storm and tempest you employed. Ah, me of what an awful gale, some never lived to tell the tale. The floods came down and spread alarm, they never thought of death or harm. Disaster no, they little thought how it would set their work at naught. But lo, the creek soon overflowed, the torrent tearing down the road. Seething and raging, might and main, while heroes went and came again. A lady fair, both brave and bold, saved live quite reckless, we are told. At daylight, what an awful scene, they never thought it could have been. Their little town, which once was there, had disappeared, the place was bare, and all around lay desolation. Could we but give them consolation? The lives of men and women went to eternal rest, we trust their scent. Their earthly joys and cares are done, the race of life they each have run. What sacrifice you had to pay, O Claremont, on that awful day. That was a haunting poetic reflection written by Ezra Shawley and published in 1925. Ezra was travelling through central Queensland as a recruiting sergeant in 1916 and witnessed the devastation of the Clermont flood, which is, Elena, what we originally planned this podcast to be about. However, it's become more of a story of gold, pioneering hardships, unmarked graves and haunted pubs. Clermont is located in central Queensland, 370 kilometres northwest of Rockhampton, and is an area of high rolling plains and 300 metre peaks, of which we've climbed. We have. Some of those peaks. We've climbed the Gemini Peaks, or one of the Gemini Peaks, and you've climbed Wolfang. Wolfang, yes. Wolfang Peak. And we are going to climb another one of the Gemini Peaks, hopefully sometime this year. We'll be able to do a podcast from the top. <laughs> <laughs> do a story. So it, it is a beautiful, um, there's lots of, when you drive to Clermont, there's lots of grazing land and there's lots of agriculture and, yeah, these beautiful um, volcanic plugs, really, is what they look like or what they are. So originally recognised as good grazing land, stockmen moving sheep came across gold on the banks of a lagoon on Sandy Creek in 1860. So then from there, Clermont started off as a shanty town and went on to become a settled centre of business. And... I'm pretty impressed by what was there, considering this is, you know, early 1800s, late 1800s, early 1900s. So they had five hotels, their own newspaper called the Peak Downs Telegraph, a draper, fancy goods store, a butcher, jewellers, a furniture shop, soft drink factory. They had stables in the main street. Um, I'm pretty impressed about the... The soft drink factory? Yes. And you were telling me that lots of towns had soft drink factories? They did because there was no way to transport carbonated water. So I know Charters Towers had one. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, Claire, I can remember Claremont's being there when we were growing up. My sister's 
friend's grandparents owned it. Oh, wow, there you go. So you couldn't, you couldn't cart it because it would explode or something. Yeah, so once they figured out how to do that, all those little um, soft drink factories hmm, closed, closed down. down. So in 1916, which is the year of the flood, the population was about 1,500 and it was well known that if it rained hard enough, the flat areas of town would be covered with water. Flooding was not uncommon, but in the early hours of Wednesday, December 27th, a cyclone crossed the coast between Bowen and Mackay and rain poured down in the catchment area of First Wolfgang and then Sandy Creeks. And it rained for most of the day, getting steadily heavier at night. The water rose quickly and all the houses along Sandy Creek were washed away. All members of Simon Carroll's family drowned and his brother in Lord Harry lost his wife, 14-month-old baby, mother and two sisters. The estimated loss of life was 63 drowned, making it one of the worst floods in Australian history in terms of loss of life. So I've got an advert here from the newspaper from the 9th of January 1917 and it quotes, A special correspondent has visited the scene of the Clermont disaster and states... On Sunday, we rode for seven miles through country strewn with wreckage. The cemetery is merely a mass of holes. The coffins have been washed away and carried downstream and the headstones have been wrecked or where they were of wood have been borne long distances. In places, our horses went almost to their haunches in mud and the area was heavily timbered country for seven miles, thickly covered with every kind of household item. Mattresses and tables were hung in the fork of trees and we had to dodge to avoid colliding with them. Every tree we passed had a mass of debris two feet high and more piled against the trunk. Most extraordinary articles were found together in remarkable places. At one spot we saw an alarm clock standing upright on the bottom of an upturned table and on the same table was a bronze coffee pot, a roll of bandages, a pair of winkers, which I think is horse winkers, yes, I do. <laughs> two spoons and a woman's shoe. We had just passed on when my horse shied at something in a tree and we and went back to his haunches in the mud. The most gruesome discovery was, however, yet to come. We found a box in a tree and subsequently realised that it was a coffin and on the other side we came across a skull peering through the branches. That would have been the most scariest thing ever. Very disturbing. And that probably wouldn't have been the only one. No. For two and a half hours, we rode this terrible country, seeking strange sights and realising more and more the frightfulness of this catastrophe. No one who has not seen the town can have the remotest idea of the devastation wrought. The lesson is an awful one, but it must be taken to heart by low-lying towns. And the Claremont is low-lying. When you look at the cemetery and that little bit near the lagoon, it is really flat. And it had flooded many times before Um, and to finish up it says because of the muddy sodden ground some bodies could not be brought back and 16 were buried by police where they were found at least two people were lost without a trace the remaining bodies were identified and placed in a rough cart and carted off to the cemetery there was a large trench that was dug and 36 bodies were buried four in private graves and the others in a common grave 50 dead goats were removed from the debris and a club billiard table was found hanging in a tree along with a couple of pianos and a third on the fence. In a high block hotel, a horse was washed upstairs into one of the rooms. Water tanks had burst and twisted and bags of corn and wheat were everywhere and later when the water receded and the sun shone for a few days, corn and wheat were everywhere making it look like one big farm. That's cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's like rebirth in devastation. Yes. That is like the, there's a book that we are reading as part of these podcasts. Um, now I can't remember what it's called, Badlands. And it talks about a flood in Mackay, where Mackay's a big sugar place. But when after the flood receded, yeah, the sugar that got wet just spilled out like syrup and then dried everywhere and all these bees came. So, yeah, it's very similar to the it bags is. of wheat all exploding and coming to life like chia pets. 
The question on everyone's mind was the future of the town. From the ruins, a new and completely changed Clermont was created. Many of the buildings that survived the flood were not very old and still in good repair, so each building was raised on jacks and timber rails were laid beneath it and for about 100 metres ahead. Steam traction engine then winched the buildings along tracks, in some cases moving the building over a kilometre and up a very steep hill. And anyone who's been in Clermont like us... It's amazing. That feet, that hill is so steep and they're just pulling these massive hotels up. Huge hotels, yeah. <laughs> I just read the commercial actually got cut in half. We talk about the commercial hotel a little bit later um, in the podcast. It got cut in half and taken up in two separate pieces. Ah. Um, and this I thought was very interesting and had to add in that while the hotel was on the road, the boarders had their meals served in the dining room and as usual slept in their rooms each night. <laughs> Could you imagine with workplace health and safety? We're moving the hotel. It's fine. You can still eat and sleep there as normal. But it would have been very slow going. So apparently, <laughs> only going up. The I'll have to read in the book, but I don't remember it being that long. Lose the tucker rolling off your plate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> apparently, they moved them in quite a short amount of time. Okay. I'll have to check the stats. Anyway, all of this and more can be seen at the Clermont Historical Centre over in Clermont. They've been fantastic in helping us research for this podcast and a book called A Shifting. Town by George Puller, glass plate images of Clermont and its people, and that shows all the um, the floods and and the people, the people and the Aboriginal camp that was there at the time, and how they pulled this town up the hill and moved it. So yeah, it's great. If anyone can get anyone can get a shifting town from their local library, or their library can order it. It is hard to get your head around that kind of disaster, that kind of flood, particularly when there had been so many before. So reported there was 1870, 1893 and 1896. So the 1871 has got the most information that we could kind of find. We found a newspaper report from the Maitland Mercury and the Rocky Bulletin. They were very similar articles, but... um. Yeah, it's just full of such amazing descriptions, takes you right in there. There was a writer in Claremont at the time, so he obviously sent his story out to a bunch of newspapers, and this was the public's first glimpse at what had happened that night in 1870. So the article states it had been raining continuously on January 31st, and all the creeks and the lagoon were full. However, and I quote, not the slightest apprehension was felt till just before midnight on Monday last. Wolfang Creek came down and in a single hour inundated Claremont to the depth of four to five feet. So they were taken totally by surprise even though the creeks were brimming full like they are now because as we record this all of the creeks that we talk about Sandy Creek and Wolfang Creek they are all they're either currently over or brimming like right to the top or have been over so yeah nobody just no one was really concerned which is really strange to me but um this was the first so maybe yeah it it did have right to take them by surprise it'll never happen to me complex I think too yeah but being like camped right next to like having a home right next to the creeks and going yeah We'll be all right. They, they were different then, maybe they had <laughs> a bit stronger beliefs. Yeah, that's exactly, they were braver. <laughs> so the writer in the in this article, he talks about trying to flee uh, and being unable to due to the water. So him and his roommate ended up just climbing a tree and waiting it out. I'll put on my 1800s uh, voice <laughs> as best I can. Here's a little quote. <clears throat> By this time, everyone in the town was astir. The yells of men, the screams and wailing of women... The crash of buildings and fences, the fury of torrent, the roar of the wind, the pelting of the rain made the stoutest hearts quail with terror. So, I told you it was descriptive. Um, <laughs> I so love these, the language. I know, <laughs> it is great. So these poor guys, these the guys who were writing, they just had to see so much awfulness, I guess. So they talk about a kitchen that was underneath the tree that they had climbed that a family was living inside of and 
a mum, dad and baby and they heard the building tear apart. They watched it float away. They could hear the wife scream and they seen the baby struggle and drown. And there's just nothing they could do. There's uh, another story in there, a young lad named Lewis, who it says at the time was under the effect of stimulants. We've talked about what kind of stimulants could possibly be in an 1870 gold town. Opium from Chinese prospectors. I don't know, alcohol, if they call alcohol stimulant. Uh, anyway, he was full of adrenaline and trying to be brave, Fool I guess. And, yes. And despite people trying to hold him back, he took to the waters in an attempt to rescue the local doctor. And you can see that. You can relate to that. You've got a teenage son. I mm-hmm. have teenage daughters. Stupid. Young, drunk, yep, stupid, <laughs> brave. Um, but, yeah, so this young Lewis was immediately carried away and drowned. So, yeah, lots of people, like you said, they were just brave. <laughs> but by daybreak, the water had proceeded to about one and a half feet and another quote scarcely a building but sustained damage of more or less serious character so in other words every building was damaged just some worse than others uh, they estimated the total loss of goods and damage to property being no less than ten thousand pounds which was obviously a lot of money back then and this included tools and, and their buildings flour tea like we talked about before in the 1916 one with their grain and everything but an interesting quote here and remember this was the first of the four really significant floods that killed lots of people between them preceding the 1916 flood and the quote is the people however are actively at work in setting their houses in order as the repetition of such a calamity is not likely to occur for many years to come so they it's like w- the 100 year flood scenario <laughs> that's right then it's what 50 years between this one and the big one that- yeah Washed everyone away. So they, this is what I mean. They were brave and they were stoic and they were stubborn and they just didn't want to go, I guess. And I think there was gold up. Yeah. They didn't want to move because it was easier where the town was. It was just too easy to get to get to the get gold. To get to the gold, yeah. So further downstream in this 1870 flood, the two lives of some men in Capella were taken. The Phillips family from Peakdown Station, that was a husband, wife and child, they were drowned. Uh, the policeman at the time, Mr Purdy, I believe was his name, he just had to really quickly, you know, knock up a whole bunch of coffins to to bury the dead. Also, Lilyvale, four children were drowned, houses and humpies carried away, two other deaths, uh, an aged woman of ill repute who lived just below Claremont. They um, heard her be washed away, but they never found her body. Another fellow wearing a red shirt was sighted floating um, down the torrent on two separate occasions. They believe he was a boilermaker who was headed into Claremont um, looking for work, so he was drowned upstream. So it was, yeah, just chaos. But And even the, this was what I found interesting, the folks up at Copperfield, which is not very far from Claremont, uh, they had no idea. They didn't even know any of this had happened until they came into town the next week and went, holy moly, the town is destroyed. Yeah. Hmm. So, and remember, this is January, like it is now. If you live up here, you can, all you have to do is walk outside at the moment and know that it's very, very hot. And humid. Yes. So there was over 8,000 sheep drowned in in this flood. Um, There would have been horses, other native animals, spoiled food, and of course bodies. The writer in these articles says the stench from putrid carcasses lying about in all directions is becoming unbearable. And so that's why scattered throughout the bush and on remote properties and, you know, all across the country you find lone graves. So lone graves, which is the focus of this podcast today, they, or lonely graves, they're described as being those that are located on properties, riverbanks, hillsides far removed from cemeteries. So back in the day, like you were saying in there, Brianna, they would die. They were buried where they died. Where they died, yeah. yeah. So it would, had to be quick and had to be convenient. It's very hot up here, and sometimes there just was no cemeteries nearby, or they were destroyed, like in that 
in the, the 16th. Blood washed them away. Yeah. So some of the bodies from the 1870 flood, I don't know, Claremont Cemetery, Capella Cemetery, I guess. The big gaps in the cemeteries that you think are gaps, of course, are filled, so they could be in there, just with no markers. But given the time of the year and the condition of the ground, it would have made sense just to bury people where they found them. There are plenty of lone graves all around the countryside, but you'll also find the odd uh, lone cemetery, which seems like it's in the middle of nowhere. But back then, you know, communities popped up and were abandoned really quickly when gold seams dried up or sheep died or cities started nearby. So towns just kind of were established and then went away and the cemetery stayed. My husband has a family member in a lone grave out at Mount Coolum, which is a few hours from here and somewhere we explore... um, more in this podcast series but he's out there by himself young Thomas Earl so he lost his life back in 1897 age 23 when he overheated while working in the yard so he jumped in a creek down by the station and died he was buried just where it was convenient to do so so his grave is near a station gate so he does get company uh, and tended to and his headstone hasn't actually fared it hasn't fared too too well in the weather of late but um the inscription is still really clear and it's really pretty and it's actually quite ornate to be out there by itself while researching that one i did find another earl relative and in-law i suppose uh out west who holds the title of oldest marked existing grave in north queensland so this grave together with two others is hidden at the base of the ranges west of townsville and his name is francis john earl so his death was the seventh registered at Townsville. He died on the 12th of March, 1866 of fever, aged 24. His companions in this lonely little cemetery are Mary Langton and John Henry Bell. Mary died in tragic circumstances in 1873, leaving a husband and three small children. And John Henry Bell was the infant son of Charles Bell and he died from inflammation at four years old. So these three lonely graves, much like the Claremont cemeteries we visited, are said to be resting with up to about 70, whose headstones and markers have just been lost so like so many of them scattered through the bush and even at established cemeteries their markers are just they're gone I want to know what tragic circumstances was. I know. What well, time they have more explanation and they're the usually sometimes they are very <laughs> poor lady I know In towns across the country, particularly in Western Australia and South Australia, there's volunteers that spend years visiting rural and remote cemeteries, recording their locations, transcribing their headstones, taking photos and sharing the information online. And I know that there was a group here in central Queensland who were doing the same, but I can't seem to find any info on them at the moment. But there are lots of heaps of smaller burial grounds and lone graves that are just being eroded through lack of maintenance and pests like foxes and stock, wildlife, weather. Um, And yeah, it's just so sad. The headstones from back then are just so fascinating. They're so informative. Uh, You know, Jane Doe lies here, shot by her husband on July 1st, 1865. John Doe, ravaged by dingoes in his sleep, July 2nd, 1865. Wow, really? No, I made that up. That would be a very good um, karma. I would like that to happen to, to John Doe. There literally is so lots of shot by husbands. They don't only list, like, the date of birth and the death, but they do the specifics, how they died, where they died, what their occupation was, uh, who their family was, if but they were a good person. That's what makes old cemeteries so interesting. Yes, it is super interesting. So our little Earl relative, his tombstone is full of information and it's really beautiful. But clearly, Brianna, there are some folks out there who aren't resting in peace, who haven't had a very final end. You got some info on that? Yes. Well, this is supposed to be a spooky podcast, well, in some ways. Um, In Claremont, there are two... There's lots of pubs. I don't know how many are still there. I think there's probably five. But the Commercial Hotel and the Leo Hotel 
actually have ghosts. And the commercial hotel, which is really interesting, the Claremont Heritage Centre? Yes, the museum. Yes. Also known as <laughs> the museum. Yes. I <laughs> <laughs> have been really helpful and they've given us some information. This looks like, and oh, we were supposed to do a bit more research on this, but it looks like an article out of Take That or Take Five or maybe People. Uh, people, yeah, the general interest stories. It's yeah. not a... Maybe everyone used to buy People for the, the stories. Articles, yeah. The real articles. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is one of those. So, And I don't even know what year it was written, but it was written by a Ronnie Finnegan in Claremont. Looks 90s. Yeah, her outfit looks a bit 90s. And it says, someone's buried in our roof. And it goes on to say, I'd often wondered why the ghost of an old man wanted to hang around my pub, the commercial hotel in Claremont, North Queensland. He'd been seen all over the place, but mostly he'd sided around the kitchen, making himself at home. He seems harmless, but he does have a mischievous streak. He loves opening doors, fiddling with the TV aerials, and pulling the chain in the toilet when no one is there. Again, pulling the chain in the <laughs> toilet makes makes me think this is quite an old... But they had a chain toilet at Coolant only like three years ago. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I I'd, um, I'd just got to know all his habits when a startling discovery was made. We were having the pub's roof fixed and the workmen moved aside a lot of junk that had been stored up there and what the heck I heard him cry when I went to see what the fuss was about I saw he'd uncovered a headstone do you know who this belongs to he asked I haven't got a clue I gasped in shock the headstone was set in a thick concrete section of the roof it must have lain there undisturbed for ages how it got up there is anyone's guess and what's under it I'm loath to think (laughs) the headstone reads R.G.P. D-R-B-R-I-P. After the discovery, I did some research and found that in 1916, like we've already mentioned, many people had drowned in the area during some floods. I thought our grave may contain one of the victims, but when I checked the records, I found no mention of anyone with those initials and certainly no reference to a burial in the hotel roof. But since the hotel was built in the 1800s, the stone may predate the floods. I'd love to know who our ghost is and if he has a connection with the grave in our roof. The headstone is, after all, directly above the kitchen, right where he likes to spend so much time. That's so cool. Isn't it? I love ghost haunted (laughs) pubs. Um, And we had lunch there. We we did, and it wasn't even spooky. (laughs) And we could kind of see in the kitchen. We should have gone for Candles, night time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Chips at lunchtime. So if anyone out there... Has a story about who potentially this person could be? Who is the ghost in the Leo? Yeah, no, it's commercial. Oh, the commercial. Leo is a whole different <laughs> thing. Who, so, who also was the ghost in Leo? Again, the the Claremont Museum gave us some information, which is super cool. Um, the Paranormal Paratech Queensland Incorporated came to Claremont in 2013 because the Leo Hotel had reported some paranormal activity. These included a lady in a dress was seen by staff in the hallway of the old part of the Leo Hotel. There was occasional tapping noises, footsteps, and the staff felt like they were being watched. And an upstairs accommodation room doors found unlocked and opened when they had been locked and closed prior. And it's really cool. They've got this little report and they kind of, they did lots of different investigations and they didn't really find much on their like spectrum photos and all that kind of thing. Residual energy stuff kind of came up nothing but they did do voice recordings and I've got some little audio activity here it says they used a parabolic listening device which can detect any noise or potential voices at a far greater distance of up to 300 feet and it's like headphones with a satellite on the end yeah it looks like, like ghostbustery type it does look thing. 
And the audio activity reads, Darren asks, are you a former guest or owner? And three seconds later, a male voice says, guest. Darren asks, can you please give me a sign? And three seconds later, a male voice says, okay. Darren says, please make contact with us. And 19 seconds later, the RAM pod in the hallway activates for five seconds. So that's one of those little light things that buzzes off. Yeah, um, maybe that's the residual energy thing. Darren asks, are you in the hallway? And four seconds later, a timber bang sounds. How scary would that have been? (laughs) Darren asks, were you born in Australia? And then there was nothing. And then, were you born in Ireland? And three seconds later, a female voice says yes. So then Darren asks, can you make that device go off in the hallway again for me? And three seconds later, a fast female voice recorded sounds that sounded like thank you. Darren states, there is nothing to fear from our devices. And three seconds later, a female voice says thank you. That's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. That's very cool. Um, And in the report, it says, the voice recordings um, continue to cause intrigue um, and suggest that the Leo Hotel as having an intelligent spirit haunting within. This cannot be absolutely determined, despite Paratech being able to show that during those times, those voices were not the result of those investigators present due to high-quality visual surveillance on those persons or where they were stationed during those times. The unknown voices recorded that were possibly replies to questions or other residual voices were most likely from persons that died a long time ago, as the strength of those replies were unfortunately less than desirable for absolute confirmation. At this stage, until improved software becomes available to re-review those recordings, we are pleasant with what we have obtained as voices that are definitely not ours or any living person within a radius encompassing the Leo Hotel. There were feelings of being not alone, but that cannot be confirmed without visual data at this time. So, yeah, two ghosts. Yeah. Leo Hotel and the commercial. and But two, uh, two in the Leo. Two, male yeah, and male and female. And they could very well be flood-related. They could all be flood-related because there were so many. So yes. There's, there's lots. That is very cool. I like, I'm glad that they're communicating. I don't know whether I'd like to be stuck as a ghost. I know, I don't think I'd be like to be either. But like we said, there's... There's not many peaceful resting places, I suppose. And if you die so traumatically, yeah, maybe you don't get to rest because you don't know you're dead yet. No. And, oh, I don't know. And if your body's, like, far away and lonely somewhere. It's, yeah, out in the middle of the bush where yeah, you got buried. Exactly. No one knows you're there because you're a lone, unmarked grave. All right, so we are at the Claremont Cemetery. And we are at the mass grave, which uh, holds the great majority of the people who were killed in the Claremont Flood. We're just reading the the plaque. There's a it's a huge. I don't. I'm really rubbish with measurements, but it is a quite long space here of where all these guys are buried under. And there's a big rock. Um, hundred meters. Yeah, yeah. about hundred meters. Yeah. And there's a big rock as a um, plaque, I guess, in the middle, and it's got some little bronze names all over it and the flood height on a big white cross which is pretty gigantic um what's that 259.8 meters that's pretty crazy that's yeah so the 1960 flood it was huge that was this would have just been gone yeah the names holy moly some of them are really quite sad and these aren't all correct we do have we'll have the correct list um to go through but these ones are just estimates i suppose there's a few body not recovered um, not identified. Two boys, one swagman, four women. Oh, that's just sad. These one. 
ones yeah, with just last names. Yeah, just last names and and lots of kids. There is lots of nine-year-old, eight-year-old. Yeah, entire families. Holy moly! There was t- how many did I say? Fifteen who were buried where they lay, I guess, because the roads, the ground was so wet and sodden there was not much they could do about it so the police had to just bury 15 then there were so many who were not recovered and then yeah the guys who are here in this mass grave and there's a few that are scattered about through different rows through the cemetery but my gosh it's very sad what I find is super bizarro and I feel bad saying the word creepy in a cemetery because I respect you all but um Brianna, how you were saying, this this cemetery is full. This is a massive cemetery. It's very big. But if to the untrained eye, you would look around and go, oh, you know, there's huge gaps over there. There's like lots and lots and lots of spare plots here. But there's not. No. There, where there's gaps, there's just people just un, unmarked. And like a whole big back section that there's just random crosses. You look or... around and there's just like a little plaque poking out of the grass on the ground. Yeah. So this cemetery is full. Yeah, the old section. Yeah, the old section is full. That is is blowing my mind. But I guess, you know, a lot of people couldn't afford to get the headstones put on at the time. Or there was... Yeah, or there was no family to do it. Like, a lot of the people up here were gold prospectors and they probably had no family. Well, that's right. The ones at the start, as we kind of walked in, are from the 1800s. That is a very, very, very long time ago. A lot of time for things to rot but that's what else we're kind of talking about too now the headstones some of them are so ornate there's angels and more angels and crosses and that looks like an eagle but they were clearly not as expensive then as they are now yes they can cost up to fifteen thousand dollars now or more i if you go past um the cemetery at air you know where all the oh like the mausoleums and yes the, imagine how much lots they of cost yeah, but that's, and now, nowadays, yeah, my gosh, these things were part and parcel. Like I said, they turn up in hotels. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I did a bit of research about what headstones actually cost. And um, this is just a Brisbane website. It's really hard. You know, lots of them want you to apply for a quote. <laughs> Subscribe. Yeah. <laughs> so I just kind of tried to find something that just had general prices on it. So the basic lawn headstone is between $600 and $2,000. A flat slab monument, which we've saw a lot of at Clermont Cemetery, is between 5000 and 11000 A full double flat stone gravestone is between 10000 and 23000 And these prices depend on the granite of choice, the cemetery fees that can be anywhere between 200 and 2000 depending on the cemetery and the particular section that you choose to be buried in. Inscription costs and accessories. So some of the accessories are metallic or granite vases. I have seen those yeah, on those yeah. slab graves. A pillow and a Bible. I don't know why you'd want a pillow on top of your headstone but anyway um and symbols such as jesus mary angels and crosses you know like the little statue things yep so yeah that's a little bit of so it grave. is an expensive undertaking it is to be, to yes. be buried these days something to think about <laughs> <laughs> savings <laughs> so on our um adventure to Claremont, we also went to the copperfield cemetery little history about copperfield 
Gold was not the only mineral that drew people to the district, to the Claremont district. In 1862, copper had been discovered seven kilometres south of Claremont at Copperfield, and two years later, the Peakdowns Copper Mining Company began smelting operations. Despite the high quality of the ore, the cost of the transport to the coast and a slump in world copper prices after the Franco-Perugian War, which is from 1870 to 1871, proved too much for the new company and it was forced to sell. Among other assets was a coal seam on 40 hectares of land known as Blair Athol, 20 kilometres north. But by law, the liquidator was not permitted to work the mine. The copper and coal mines were owned by various syndicates and although the coal fields eventually flourished, the copper mines were not successful and at its peak in the 1870s, Copperfield employed nearly a 1,000 men including smelters and carters and some 250 children attending the school. By 1899, the population had dwindled to just 200 and the proximity of Copperfield was a boost for Clermont in the early days and the fortunes of the two towns were closely linked with regular coach services for passengers and mail. By the time Copperfield was declining, Clermont was in the middle of its short-lived gold boom. So pretty much when you go to Copperfield, all that remains there is um, a chimney and a cemetery. So a big chimney, the big copper smelter. It's like a 19th century copper smelting infrastructure. And that's apparently really rare in Queensland. And the preserved remains of the Copperfield chimney stand as testimony to the ingeniality and nature of early mining techniques. The Claremont Historical Centre, which is what we talked about before where we got the information about the ghosts, um, it's located on the Gregory Highway on the way to Mackay, about 400 metres beyond the roundabout on the left. It boasts 8,000 artefacts from this time period and welcomes visitors from all over Australia. Uh, this, the cemetery is located nine kilometres west of Clermont and has not been an active burial ground since the early 1900s. So pre the 1916 flood, Copperfield wasn't really an active cemetery anymore. Only a small number of people have been buried there since. Like if you've got a relative or someone buried there, then you are allowed to be buried there. The cemetery contains over 300 people and in mostly unmarked graves. It is a final resting place for the earliest inhabitants of Copperfield and the inscriptions are on a wall there within the cemetery with names from a myriad of cultures bearing witness to the mixed culture and hardworking heritage of this historical town. And that was restored. So the cemetery was restored in 1992, undertaken by the Clermont Lioness Club. And there's kind of like a wall there with like heaps of names on there. And pretty much the rest of the cemetery is empty. There's probably only about 10 maybe graves standing yeah that's what yeah. i mean to think that it looks barren and like there's just a spattering of there's like two graves on one side maybe three up the front together and and, and then a lot of them have that iron yes the headstone and they're just blank like whatever the, they used yeah. is just worn off but that the ground is just blank that you think it's it could just, just be like a, like a paddock area of nothing but yeah. on that wall are the names of so many children, huh? There was lots of little ones. Yes, lots, like eight months, two months. Yeah, just so many. It's, yeah, it's amazing. It's a very cool little cemetery, though. was. But, yes, many unmarked graves there. We did describe, uh, while we were out at the cemetery, a little bit of the headstones that were out at the Claremont Cemetery, and they are very different to, like we said, the Copperfield Cemetery. There's probably only three or four 
or so, yeah, that are outside of the 1800s. So they're headstones, I guess, which are mostly iron, which is very common for mining settlements back in the day. Uh, The inscriptions, like I said, they're all gone. So from what I can kind of gather research-wise, sometimes the inscriptions were painted on, which, you know, isn't going to last, or sometimes they were on water and other material, which was then attached to the front of the iron headstone. But that also hasn't lasted through the ages either. Which is really sad, but the volunteers who went through and got all those names, and when did you say it was? 92. See, that would have been so tough as well because the internet wasn't really a thing in 1992. That would would have been back in the day where you had to like ring people and write letters. And go and look on microfiche in the library. I've tried that once when I was younger trying to be a bit of a detective. It's very difficult, (laughs) but maybe you can still do it. But it would have been so hard, that's what I mean, to find, to retrace all of that information of so many people. But... In researching about lone graves and cemeteries, I did come across some pretty interesting information about headstones, uh, various materials and the names for the different shapes. So there's semicircular with cutaway shoulders. You can have gothic with acroteria. You can have anthropomorphic or gabled, and that's just headstones. They're crosses. You can have Celtic, Saxon, uh, lots of different ones. Uh, With the pillars, you can get obelisk or pedestal there's just so many different things so the cemeteries that we visited in claremont copperfield were mostly semicircular or gothic uh, at copperfield there weren't many headstones like i said not stone headstones there's they call iron etna is that e- the E-T-N-A. fence like the iron no fence. that's what they call the the iron just the headstone the headstone part mm-hmm. yeah it's called etna but um over at claremont there were lots of really pretty and really ornate headstones there was angels and whatnot and lots of what i have come to learn are called immortelles which is fast becoming one of my very favorite words uh an immortel is a long-lasting flower arrangement placed on graves in cemeteries so these were originally made from natural dried flowers which lasted longer than fresh or they could be made from artificial materials such as china and painted plaster of paris or beads strung on wire arrangements unless made of a highly durable material they would often be enclosed in glass container known as globes or domes, I guess, so to protect them from the weather. Uh, In some cases, they were embedded into the grave itself, like in the concrete over the grave, while other times they're merely just placed on the graves. And we we did see lots of those. But um, I did find an awesome little piece of writing on Immortelles from Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain in 1883. He comments on the burial practices in New Orleans. They bury their dead in vaults above the ground. Fresh flowers in vases of water are to be seen at the portals of many of the vaults, placed there by the pious hands of the bereaved parents and children, husbands and wives, and renewed daily. A milder form of sorrow finds its inexpensive and lasting remembrancer in the coarse and ugly but indestructible immortelle, which is a wreath or cross or some such emblem made of rosettes of black linen, with sometimes a yellow rosette at the conjecture of the cross's bars. Kind of a sorrowful breastpin, so to say. The immortelle requires no attention. You just hang it up and there you are. Just leave it alone. It will take care of your grief for you and keep it in mind better than you can. Stands weather first rate and lasts like boiler iron. So clearly back in the day, in the 1800s, they were for the less wealthy members of society. They were popular in Australia in the early 20th century and in recent times plastic flowers have replaced immortelles as long-lasting flower arrangements and therefore that's why you'll only see these immortelles on mostly older graves, like in the old section at mm-hmm. Claremont. There yeah. was lots of them there. But lone graves that I've seen about the place in my travels uh, have mostly been kind of gothic or your old school semicircle stones. But there are plenty of rustic pedestals, they call them, which is a way 
uh, fancy way of saying a big rock, just like a rock with an engraving on it. Or, you know, these days people do put plaques on rocks, but even cans, just piles of rocks. So sometimes you could have a lone grave on your property or you could pass by one on your travels and you would never even know. It's kind of like our friend Bill. So we met this fellow at the Claremont Museum or the Claremont Historical Centre when we were doing some research and just totally coincidentally out of the blue, this bloke walked in and he piqued our interest instantly. (laughs) Um, The poor guy. (laughs) Oh, I know. But we were talking to Olga, our lovely uh, hostess at the museum there, and we decided to grab Bill before he could get away (laughs) from us. And he sat down with us at the museum, surrounded by all these old artifacts and and photographs, some of which are his and some of which were photographs of his family and your family, Brianna. Uh, And he told us his lone grave story. All right. My name is Bill Faint. I've been here all my life. I was born and bred out at Mistake Creek at Pioneer and um, I spent the next, probably the next 40 years there with my my father for a little while and then he was killed when I was only 20 years old and uh, we lived very happily. I was married and had uh, three children and uh, we uh, uh, lived there until uh, 1984 and um, we're all enjoyed sport and um, we decided to come a little closer to town so we sold Pioneer and bought Glenmore in uh, about 1982 and um, you know it was nice and handy to town and it's a lovely little property and uh, yeah so that's that's giving you a quick overview. We were talking earlier and you've got a very interesting piece of history on your property can you tell us a bit about that? That's the graves down at, uh, yes, well, um, they're not very far from the Springs, where the old Springs Hotel uh, was situated. And um, I think it was 27 people were buried there, and um, we sort of got to know where it was, and we had a look, and you could actually see, when we first came there, you could see the um, uh, the mounds where they were, where they were buried, but there was no um, uh, tombstones. But we did find then one tombstone was half buried, just fallen over, and it had buried in the uh, in the mud. So we dug it out and um, cleaned it up, and then we uh, got the names of the other people. That was a little bit difficult, but we did get the names of the people, and uh, so we got that engraved on them, and now we've got it set up um, there, so safer forever. Wonderful. And so what? Where, where were these people from? What happened? How did they end up out there? I'm not sure, you know, I've I've, I've probably led to believe that, you know, the Springs Hotel, lots of travellers, people going by um, and then sort of just died there. There's there's only one person in town that I know that has uh, a relation or claim there's a relation there. And that's Marlene Ben, and uh, you know, with the 27, you would have thought if they were locals, there would be quite a lot of other people would have, um, you know, would have been there, or that, or the, some of their family. But so, I sort of think that it's probably um, like people, um, tramps, and just guys or ladies, and that, and just just going by and stopped there and um, you know it was a tough times and and I guess a lot of them just died and then they were just buried now but you know you can't write that down as being gospel because that's only my theory yeah so it's a bit of a mystery as to it is yeah it is
And what made you want to go about restoring the memorial out there? Look, oh, I think, uh, well, no, there's no doubt. I think as you get older, you know, one time that uh, in my younger days I was um, busy playing cricket, rodeoing, and we're doing everything else. But then as you get a little older, and you know, and you think, well, um, you know, there's like so that photo there in front of me there, you know, with Jeremiah Rolfe and. So that's um, where we started, and we went out and um, restored all that uh, gravesite and um, did it up and put all the names and everything of people were there. And then we've been back to Mount Eagle, where my grandparents—they're on the wall beside us there. They're they're buried, and uh, so we've uh, we've done them up. And uh, then my dad was killed with a horse in Mount Eagle, and so we've been back out and uh, and uh, and put a nice uh, monument there and on the brass. We've got a brass plaque, you know, with the, who it was and how he got killed and everything. And I guess it's just as you get a little older, you get a little bit more is it sentimental. Or yeah. yeah. It's a beautiful mark of respect for these people to have, have um, be remembered after all this time. I think you've done a wonderful thing. It's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And so how, how do you feel about... Um, and your, your wife sharing your space with, with these folks out there been an interesting journey I'm sure but do you think that you've helped them rest in peace more giving them their giving them a mark well I don't know whether I go as far as saying that that you know that I could make them or feel like they'd rest in peace but yeah no I think um you know that they're entitled to having at least their names there because in another 50 or 60 or 80 years you know that it'll be just dead and gone and there'll be nobody will know where it is now um you know in whatever it's there on a brass plaque, and it, you know they're engraved. It'll be there forever in a day. Yep. So, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's good. As I say, I was only 20 when my dad was killed. And, um, you know, and I look back at it now and I think, oh, my gosh, there's a hundred different things, you know, that, uh, you know, that I would have liked to have down, write, written down now. Mm. And that is why I'm trying to just write a few... And I'm terrible. You should, you know, I'm, I'm terrible at spelling and I'm terrible at putting things together. But I still think it's going to be, you know, it's going to be interesting to somebody oh, or some yeah. people yeah, in another 20, 30, 50 years' time. Yeah, because if it's not done now, it'll be forgotten. Because well, it's like my like dad. Your gravestones, too. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah they. Yep, yeah, that's right. And, and like my dad, you know, and. Um, He's gone and his stories have gone. That's right. Yeah. You know, the, the stories, and he used to tell me lots of stories, but, you know, I was. At 18 and 19, you know, I was interested in more other things than, than you know, than history. And now I kick myself and I think, oh, my gosh, you know, if I could have just got some stories uh, from, you know, from my dad. But even like of that car there that's over on the, on the wall, that was the first car my dad had. And he came to town when, when his mother died and he, in that old car and he put uh, pine boards and um, took them home and then he, he uh, built a, a coffin and uh, then had to um, dig the grave and he actually buried, buried her and, uh, in, in, at Mount Eagle. And, uh, you know, how, how, what, a tough, what a tough thing that would be to do to uh, lose a loved one and then, uh, then have to go through that. Taking note of these lonely graves is 
really important. They all have a story to tell, each and every one of them. And I guess it's up to us now to tell their stories, to remember them. So if you have a lone grave on your property or if you've seen one on your travels, take the time to stop, have a read, take notes or take a photo and send it into your local council or to a website like the Australian Cemeteries Index. Time passes way too quickly and unless we write it down and tell these stories, then nothing lasts forever. That's why you're doing what you're doing. Like yep, you're yeah, well. Keeping your stories for the next Well, that's, that's right. It's, uh, and when you're doing it, you know, you feel as though, who would want to read that about old Bill Faint as this? And then you look back at the, uh, at the history and you think, well, we'd have liked to have, you know, I would have loved to have had something about Jeremiah Rolfe or, uh, um, you know, those sort of people if they'd have only just uh, written something down. So... Yeah. I thought, well, and I say to my friends, you know, the, the you know the ADLs, and uh, um, you know, just write something down. They say, oh, I'm not very well educated. I can't. And I say, well, neither am I. But anyway. That was 4RFM Untold Stories of the Coalfield, Episode 2, Unmarked Graves. A quick thanks to the Claremont Historical Centre for sharing your knowledge, thanks to Bill Faint for allowing us to interview you, and thanks to Andrew Tomlinson for reading our poem. Let us know what you thought of this podcast or if you've ever come across an unmarked grave by visiting 4RFM Community Radio 96.9 Facebook page or give us a call on 49416811. Episode 3 will take us out bush where we will piece together the story of Queensland's own Ned Kelly, Tom Coolen.